Well, I'm glad that you're here this morning as we're continuing our study in Genesis. We are in chapter 25 today, and uh, eternal investment trading is the title of the sermon, but it's not about money, so you'll see. But has anybody ever made a bad trade? Yeah, a bad investment? A few of those out there? You know, the Boston Red Sox traded Babe Ruth for $100,000. Well, they got a little bit more out of it. They also got a $300,000 loan to finance a musical. I don't know what that was about. 12 days after joining Apple for a 10% stake in the startup, Ron Wayne cashed out for $800. That'd be worth $80 million today. Decca Records found the Beatles and decided not to sign them. 20th Century Fox gave George Lucas the merchandising rights to Star Wars and all of its sequels for $20,000. Google invested in Motorola. Microsoft invested in Nokia. Neither of those turned out good. Carl Icken lost over $91 million in his investment in a little company called Blockbuster. Maybe some of you have heard of Enron or... Maybe some of you right now are sitting on some cryptocurrency that you wish you weren't. Bad investments happen constantly, though, right? What drives a bad investment? Well, to put it, I think, at the most, in the most simple way, it's misplaced value, right? You know, some people missed out because they undervalued the wrong things, and other people paid because they overvalued the wrong things. And most of, with most bad investments, it just costs people money. But if you misplace the value of Jesus' death on the cross, it'll cost your life, your eternity. And today our passage has a few different things that we're going to learn from. In fact, at the end, you'll probably feel like it was a, a bit of a smorgasbord. But one part of the story shows us a man who misplaced value and made a very, very bad trade. But we're not going to get there until more towards the end of the message. I'm going to start by quickly running through the first kind of half of this chapter with a little running commentary along the way. And then we're going to slow down at verse 19 and take a look at a couple's struggle with infertility, which will also take up uh, a, a large theme of our time today. But before we get into that, let's pray. God, thank you for bringing us together. Thank you for this chapter and all the, the themes, all the things that we can learn from. Thank you for the way that your word just speaks so clearly, even in today's world, and it will never stop, Lord. It's eternal. It's unchanging. We are so thankful to have uh, just the truth of God's word that, that we can go back to, you know, that, that sets us right. Every time that we get off, we can go back and, and and get back on track by looking at your word. And, and I pray this morning that our hearts would be open, Lord. There's, you know, this, uh, the, the things that we'll talk about this morning are going to hit in different ways depending on people's experiences and struggles and sufferings that they've had. Uh, but I, I hope that we'll all leave here really excited about eternity and ready for it. 
And so just prepare us right now for whatever you, the Holy Spirit wants to do. And we pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. So we just start at the beginning, verse 1 through 4. It says, Abraham had taken another wife whose name was Keturah, and she bore him... Okay, here we go. Zimron, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. Dedan's sons were Asherim, the Asherim, Latushim, and Leumim. And Midian's sons were Ephah, Ephur, Hanok, Abida, and Elda. All these were sons of Keturah. So the text doesn't tell us exactly when Abraham started his relationship with Keturah. It just says that it had happened. All right. In verse 5 and 6, Abraham gave everything he owned to Isaac, but Abraham gave gifts to the sons of his concubines. And while he was still alive, he sent them eastward away from his son Isaac to the land of the east. So we see that Isaac took the full inheritance and all of Abraham's other sons were given gifts, right? We notice that Abraham sent them all far away from Isaac and the precise reason for that is not explained. But I think John MacArthur may be right when he said that this action solidified Isaac as the rightful heir and removed competition and threats that could have come from any of his half-brothers. We'll move on to verses 7 and 8. This is the length of Abraham's life, 175 years. He took his last breath and died at a good old age, old and contented, and he was gathered to his people. I know the KJV in verse 8, uh, he took his last breath is he gave up the ghost. So if you've ever heard that saying, that's where that comes from. Uh, Abraham's death is a big transition in the story. But I'm not going to really focus on it today. We've been studying Abraham for a while, and I, I did focus on Sarah's death uh, in a sermon that really had to do with death. And I could, of course, go into a discourse about, you know, dying contented and leaving behind a good legacy. But I also have a preaching philosophy that doesn't want to take forever and ever to get through uh, every book of the Bible. And so... I don't want to spend years and years in Genesis when the Bible has so much for us to learn from. Some of you know how that can be. Maybe you've been in or seen churches where you could ask a congregant, well, what's your pastor preaching through? Oh, oh we're in Revelation right now. Oh, cool. How long have you been in there? Oh, goodness. Mm. Well, I think it's been about 16 years now. <laughs> we're on chapter 16, and he goes about a chapter a year. So, yeah, I think that's right. No, I, you know, we see that Abraham died peaceful and happy. It says he was gathered to his people. Um, there's, we probably shouldn't read too much into that particular phrase. Uh, it, in, it seems like a general term that points to death and burial, and uh, it, you'll see it again in this chapter. But it could also have implications about the afterlife. But really, there's nothing explicit where we can make any, any big conclusions about what's meant by that phrase, he was gathered to his people. So we'll move on to verses 9 through 11. His sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah near Mamre, in the field of Ephron, son of Zohar, the Hittite. This was the field that Abraham bought from the Hittites. Abraham was buried there with his wife Sarah. After Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac, who lived near Beer Lahai Roy. So we've talked about that cave and, and uh, Sarah's death before, and Isaac and Ishmael appear to have reconvened 
for their, after their father's death. You know, death often has the effect of either tearing a family apart or bringing it back together. And thankfully, in this case, it was the latter. We'll go to verses 12 through 18. These are the family records of Abraham's sons, Ishmael, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's slave, bore to Abraham. These are the names of Ishmael's sons. Their names, according to the family records, are Nebaioth, uh, Ishmael's firstborn, then Kedar, Ab- Adbil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tima, Jatur, Nafish, and Kadima. These are Ishmael's sons, and these are their names by their settlements and encampments. Twelve leaders of their clans. This is the length of Ishmael's life, 137 years. He took his last breath and died and was gathered to his people. And they settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt, as you go toward Asher. He stayed near all his relatives. So this actually fulfills a prophecy that we studied earlier in Genesis in chapter 17, verse 20. He said, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. And so then now in chapter 25, we're seeing those 12 princes that were prophesied about Ishmael's family. Verse 19 says, These are the family records of Isaac, son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took as his wife Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, from Padan Aram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to his, the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. So this is where we're going to slow down. We're going to start digging in a little more. So I want us to think about this situation. We learned all about the way that God orchestrated Isaac and Rebekah's marriage, right? There could be no doubt that it was God's will. And, and I'll go even beyond that and get more specific because technically, you know, everything that happens is God's will in one sense of the word. But this is not just something that God allowed to happen that falls into his overall plans for the world This was his specific desire for these two to be married, and he involved himself directly in bringing them together. And not only that, but Isaac was promised to be the son of Abraham who would carry on the promise to make descendants like the sand on the seashore. So we're faced with really what's a beautiful love story where God brought together a couple he promised to bless, and there's no evidence of them being disobedient to God or doing anything specific that would bring God's judgment or punishment on them. Yet what do we see? We see a barren woman, a couple suffering with infertility. Well, that's not how the story's supposed to go, right? I mean, in our minds, there's only one way to write the next chapter. And we just read the previous chapter where God orchestrated, oh yeah, a chance meeting between Rebecca and Abraham's servant. And and Rebecca was willing to leave her whole world behind to go marry a guy she'd never even met. And Isaac loved her the moment that he saw her. And they brought, God brought them together as the new power couple of the Hebrew people. And the only next step that makes any sense is that they would start cranking out babies left and right, building this promised family Obviously, God had blessed them, so what else could happen? Well, what did happen is they expected to start cranking out babies, but none ever came. And I know that that's a story that hits close to home in our culture. 
We all know people who have had this struggle, may be struggling with it right now. And there are some here that could struggle with it in the future. A new study from, it's a growing issue really, a new study from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem found, listen to this, that sperm concentration around the world dropped 51% between 1973 and 2018. That's crazy. It was at a rate of 1.2% per year from 1973 to the year 2000, and then accelerated to 2.6% per year from 2000 to 2018. That's huge. And we have to couple that with the fact that, that more and more people are deciding not to get married and, or others are waiting longer and longer to try to have kids. And you can imagine some of the struggles that we're going to have in the future in this world. And I know sometimes when Christian couples struggle with infertility, they're, they're tempted to think, what's wrong? Right? What have we done? What is wrong with us? And they say, why, why are you doing this, God? And can I tell you something? Just like with Isaac and Rebecca, infertility does not automatically mean that you have done anything wrong. Suffering in general doesn't mean that, that something is wrong. Right? I mean, we know that it all stems from from sin being in the world. Of course, if, if it was a perfect world, then yeah, it wouldn't happen that way. But I, I did a sermon on suffering here before, and I, you might not remember, but there are three kinds of suffering. Right? I wanted to quickly review those this morning. And those are common, deserved, and righteous. See, common suffering is just a part of being in a fallen world. This is Jesus experienced common suffering just like any other human being. Not because of his sin, but because he was a human in a sinful world. We all experience common suffering. Deserved suffering is directly linked to our sins, like our bad choices. Sometimes we have to suffer the consequences directly for our bad choices. And righteous suffering is persecution for our faith in Christ. There was nothing wrong with Isaac and Rebecca, even though they were suffering. It wasn't because of some specific thing that they had done wrong that God was punishing them for. It just wasn't God's will for them to have a child, at least not yet. They would have to wait. And boy, did they wait. Like when we read these verses isolated, we don't get the whole picture. If we just look at this, we see a couple struggling with infertility, but we don't get the full scope of the struggle. We read that and we might be like, well, they could have been trying to have a baby for a year or two or something. But we have to go down to verse 26, where it says Isaac was 60 years old when they were born. So what does that mean? How old was he when they got married? 40. 20 years they were waiting. 20 years. That would be devastating. Will you hear something from me this morning? This is important. Because Christians can often get it in their head that if we're obedient to God and we're in God's will, then things are going to be smooth. Right? Something like this. It doesn't make sense. How could that happen? We think that being blessed by God means being healthy and secure, safe, comfortable, and even fertile. We think there must be something wrong if we're not getting results. And it's easy to do as a church. It's easy to get into that. I'm tired of the kind of thinking that there must be something wrong with the church if they don't have a thriving, 
whatever, fill in the blank, right? Band, a website, they're not diverse enough. They're not baptizing a certain number of people. The membership and the, the budget isn't growing. Why would we comfort an infertile couple by rightfully telling them that they haven't done anything wrong and then turn around and rebuke a church just because they're small? That doesn't make any sense. That is inconsistent theology. We need to be faithful to the Lord. That's our measure of his success, remember? I taught on that not long ago. Not all the other stuff. Are we loving God and are we loving people? Are we focused on our mission and our purpose? You know, the harvest of a church is up to God. Just like the creation of a child. They were trying to have kids. It just wasn't working. Now, we have a, pro- we, we have a problem if we're trying to make, if we're not trying to make disciples, right? That's a problem. Then we deserve to be rebuked. Just like a couple who wants to have a baby, but doesn't, well, you know, do what you have to do to try to have a baby. You know, they say, well, we don't know what's wrong. We just can't get pregnant. And some, you ask them, well, how long have you been trying? Trying? What do you mean? you know. Oh. Oh, we haven't been doing that. Well, how did you expect to have a baby? Listen, if a church isn't trying to make disciples, then rebuke them. But if they are trying and God just isn't bringing the harvest, then comfort them. Okay? It doesn't mean there's anything wrong. But some Christians think, well, we must be under special protection from all the the difficulties and the dangers of this world. And God certainly, listen, he can and he does protect his people, but only insofar as as it fits in his plans. Sometimes he has other plans. You know, and we think, well, sure, those heretical churches, well, they're in danger, but not us. Those heathens out in the world, you know, they're at risk, but not us. Those communist countries, now they better watch out, but not us. Well, that's ridiculous. The guarantee that we have in being God's children, here's your guarantee, eternity in heaven. That's what you have guaranteed. But cancer, that can come. That can come for us. And joblessness, and accidents, and tragedies, and infertility. Our church could be the next one in the news. We don't know. We don't know, but we face that reality with a hope that extends beyond anything that can happen in this life. Cancer can take my body, but it cannot take my soul. Infertility can strip us of a biological child, but it cannot keep us from the family of God. Joblessness can drain your bank account, but it can't drain the joy of knowing Christ. For Isaac and Rebecca. You know, it it did turn out in in this circumstance that it was God's will for them to eventually have a a biological child together. But understand that that's not the case for everyone. And that can be a hard truth to swallow. My heart goes out to couples who who have to face that. So I want to extend my my sincere sympathies to them, but I also want to give some advice. This can apply to those who are struggling currently or may struggle in the future with infertility. Like I said, it's a hard truth to swallow, but I do implore you to be willing to swallow it if it comes. 
Many couples are not willing to, and so they'll go to some extreme lengths to try to avoid it, right? To, to try to avoid accepting it is what I mean. So some, and listen, some of the efforts that couples will go to in trying to have children are, are completely reasonable, understandable, and don't cross moral boundaries. But there's others that do, okay? Some things are extreme, unnatural, and unethical. And I'm not going to make this whole sermon about fertility and reproductive technologies, but Christians need to be careful. We don't just jump into things without thinking through what Scripture teaches us, looking at it in a biblical worldview, because there are moral issues that come into play with, you know, things like artificial insemination, IVF, donor eggs, surrogacy. We also need to prayerfully consider what might what, what might God be trying to do in our lives, right? We shouldn't play God and try to force something that he doesn't want to happen. That's what, that's what Abraham and Sarah tried to do. Okay, Hagar, you could consider her the first recorded surrogacy. And I understand the temptation. Like I, Our family, we haven't had that struggle, but I can try to imagine what it would be like, and I don't, I don't like trying to imagine what it would be like. But I also want to humbly make a case that if it does happen, for one thing, God has plans. He is good and he is redeeming. But, but there's also a biblical path. James 1.27 says, The religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. You know, the Bible, believe it or not, has a lot to say about adoption, just maybe not in the way you would expect. Most of scripture about adoption is about us being adopted into the family of God. Like he, Galatians 4 says, but when the fullness of the time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons and daughters, because you are sons. God has sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. See, adoption is is not always an easy path, but it reflects the gospel in such a beautiful, beautiful way for a child to be brought into a family and treated exactly the same as a biological child, right? An heir according to the promise, just like God treats us Gentiles that he let into his family. What a wonderful opportunity and ministry we have as Christians. No other adoptive parents in this world could look at what they do the way that Christians can. We should be the quickest ones to jump into that ministry. And it's not just for married couples who struggle with infertility. It's something that our family plans to do. We've talked about it for years, but we're still prayerfully discerning God's timing. But I just felt that it would be prudent, given that this has been a recurring theme in Genesis that we've had to deal with. And the realities in our society, and how this struggle affects so many people, I felt that it would be really beneficial to address it some this morning. And I understand, believe me, I understand the desire to have children. We have three that we adore, and it's hard to imagine what it would have been like if we couldn't have had them. But 
understand this. If God prevents a biological child, it doesn't mean that he wants, he doesn't want us to be parents, right? Like there are children out there who need us. They need our love to bring them into our families, just like God's love brought us into his. So that was the, the sermon title was eternal investment trading, but it could have had an alternate title of when infertility strikes, because it was a big theme for us this morning. But we're going to move on to verse 21 now and, and walk through some more of this before we stop towards the end. Verse 21 says, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. Okay, we already read that. Now it says the Lord was receptive to his prayer and his wife Rebekah conceived. So thankfully, Isaac did not follow in his father's footsteps in how he dealt with his wife's barrenness. Okay, now let's understand that Isaac's not going to always uh, avoid his father's mistakes. But in this case, he did, and they both did. I mean, goodness, can you imagine if Rebecca had been like, well, you know what, this isn't working. Why don't you have a child with this girl over here? Like, oh, gosh. No, instead he prayed. And guess what? Prayer was more effective than adultery. I know, that's profound. That should have been one of my main points on your outline this morning. Prayer is more effective than adultery. Mm, wow, Pastor, that is so profound. Thank you. Thank you for pointing that out for us. Verse 22 says, but the children inside her struggled with each other. And she said, why is this happening to me? So not only was she suffering by being barren for 20 years, but now she finally has what she's been yearning for, for all that time, right? She has babies in her belly and what's happening. She's like, why is this happening? It's not what she expected. She's suffering even some more. Why Isaac, why did you do this to me? Why did you pray? Now, this isn't a case of God acting like an angry genie trying to toy with people who make wishes. Oh, Isaac, you want a baby? Okay, I'll give you a baby. You should have been a little more specific in your prayers, but uh, here you go. No, there's a bigger picture here. There's something happening that they don't see yet. It's not just about two babies. It's about two nations. And so... The children inside her were struggling with each other. And she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will come from you and be separated. One people will be stronger than the other. And the older will serve the younger. It's a part of God's plan. The 20 years of barrenness and then an extremely painful pregnancy that had Rebecca asking if it was worth it. But sometimes pain is part of the plan. Just like with the barrenness, Rebecca wasn't suffering in her pregnancy because of something specific that she or Isaac had done that was bringing punishment. And God wasn't just trying to be mean. There was more going on they couldn't see and didn't understand. And isn't that so often the case? No, it's always the case. There's always more going on that we don't see and plans that we do not yet understand. And Rebecca finally had her babies and what a sight it must have been. Uh, Esau was basically a Wookiee. 
I don't know what that child must, she gave birth to Chewbacca. I don't know what, I've never seen anything like it. I couldn't find a condition on the internet where, but based on the description, that's just what I have to picture. And Jacob was a heel grabber and they were fighting before they were even born. And I imagine Isaac and Rebecca would bring that up as they were growing up. Boys, will you just stop it? You've been fighting before you were born. Are you ever going to quit? And then verse 27 says, when the boys grew up, Esau became an expert hunter and outdoorsman, but Jacob was a quiet man who stayed at home. Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for wild game, but Rebecca loved Jacob. You guys remember when I talked about all those examples of bad parenting in the Bible? Well, it didn't take us long to get to one. Here we are. All right. Favoritism is not a great parenting trait. And I know, hey, it can be tempting. Hey, some kids end up making you more proud than others, maybe, or, or some parents relate to certain kids more than others. But we, as parents, we have to work very intentionally as best we can to make sure our children feel equally loved. And we might dig into this a little more when we get to the story of Joseph. If you're not familiar with Joseph's story, let's just say that uh, giving special treatment to one child over the others doesn't work out too well. And uh, so, like the parents who would use this restaurant's promotion, your favorite kids eat free on Sundays. <laughs> All right, who wants to go eat with mommy and daddy today? <sighs> oh, Joe, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to stay home. All right, verse 29 through 34 is the end of our chapter. Once when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the field exhausted. He said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stuff because I'm exhausted. That is why he was also named Edom. Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. Look, said Esau, I'm about to die. So what is good is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore to Jacob and sold his birthright to him. Then Jacob gave bread and lentil stew to Esau. He ate, drank, got up and went away. So Esau despised his birthright. There's a lot left to the imagination about this whole transaction. It's, it's, you know, how desperate was Esau really? Was this a spontaneous thing or was it something Jacob had been planning? It's really just a weird situation. I mean, can you imagine Elon Musk tr coming in after working 48 hours straight and just sitting down and being like, oh gosh, I am exhausted. I feel like I'm about to die. And you're cooking stew and he's like, man, that soup looks really good. Can I get some? Sure. Just give me Tesla. All right. It's weird. It doesn't really make sense. But I think more than anything else, this story shows how much disdain Esau had for his birthright. He didn't value it. He didn't respect it. And to be honest, I don't know why. I don't get it. You know, sometimes people just don't see what's really valuable in life. You know what I mean? We see examples of that all the time. At Christmas, we're going to discuss how God is the one who assigns value to our life and how awful it is when we look to the world and other people for our value. And sometimes we just assign random values to things that don't make any sense. Esau, for some crazy reason, valued a bowl of stew more than a birthright. And sometimes we misplace value in so many ways, we tend to overvalue our possessions, our dreams, our work, our comfort. We undervalue our families. 
or church, God's commands in Scripture. We might overvalue our perceived goodness and undervalue God's grace in our lives. We might overvalue our, all the sacrifices that we make for God and undervalue the sacrifice that Christ made for us. Esau is an example of a man who chose instant gratification over long-term reward. And Hebrews had this to say about him in chapter 12. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and through it many become defiled. See to it that no one becomes an immoral and godless person as Esau was, who sold his birthright for a single meal. You know that later, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, even though he sought the blessing with tears. So it's interesting. It says that Esau is unholy because he didn't value, really because he didn't value the right things. And because he didn't repent. And as Christians, we must not follow in those footsteps. We must not choose instant gratification over long-term reward. Of course, that applies in so many ways. We do it on so many levels. It might happen in the way we spend our money. Well, I know this is a better investment, but I really want this right now. We might do it. Some of us probably did it just this past week when we eat food. Well, I know I'm being gluttonous, but oh, it just tastes so good. It might happen in the choices that we make for relationships. I know this isn't the person God wants me to be with. I know it's not a relationship that honors the Lord, brings glory to Him. But, you know, I'm comfortable. It's easy, and it would be so scary and inconvenient to, to change it. It might happen in the things we look at or think about. Oh, I know that my mind and, and, and my heart and my eyes, my body, they're for my spouse, right? But, but I really want to look at this. So the whole Christian life is centered around choosing long-term reward instead of instant gratification. We all know that it's easier and more immediately pleasurable to do whatever feels good to us in the moment instead of picking up our crosses, denying ourselves, and following Christ. It's satisfying to give in to my lusts, my angers, my urges, my temptations. Of course, anybody who's gone down that path also knows that those pleasures quickly give way to regret and shame. But the most important example of all this is with our very own salvation. Matthew 7 says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. It's all about trading. Instant gratification for long-term reward. Being a Christian is trading my own desires for the Lord's. It's trading sin being my master to Jesus being my master. It's trading earthly riches for a heavenly inheritance, right? Really, it's trading a lot for a little. Matthew 13 says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all he had and bought it. And Matthew 19 says, Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake, they're trading, will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. 
See, Jesus never tried to sugarcoat the difficulty of following him. He wasn't, he was very clear. There's this road and there's this road. This one's easy, this one's hard. But he also wasn't shy about the reward that you would find at the end of that road. If you want to follow Jesus, you give up a lot. A lot of pride, a lot of selfishness, a lot of dreams, desires, time, resources. But you gain so much more. You gain everything. Listen, the world can have pleasure. We get eternal joy. The world can have lust, but we get to experience unconditional love. The world can have money, but church, one day we'll walk streets of gold. Does that not excite you at all? I hope it does. People miss heaven because they don't recognize the value of knowing God. They misplace value. Just like Esau misplaced the value of his birthright. And I implore you not to do that. Most of all, don't do it with your salvation. But we can go even beyond that. Don't do it with our sanctification either. It's great to get eternity secured by repenting of your sins, putting your faith in Jesus. But we still have daily choices where we can mistakenly choose instant gratification over long-term reward. But it's not beneficial. It's not worth it at any level. You may not be interested in day trading on the stock market. All right, but every Christian needs to be a day trader. I got to wake up every day and start trading. I got to trade what I want for what God wants. I got to trade what serves me for what serves others. I got to trade what brings me glory to what brings him glory. So what do you say? Is there a trade that you may need to make today? Let's pray. God, thank you for this passage of scripture. Thank you for being the God that you are. I mean, what more can we say? You just, you are who you are. And even as much as we try, we can't really grasp your greatness, your goodness, your power your knowledge, your love, your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness, your justice. But I am so thankful that, that we don't have to go through this life oh, just at the hands of this world. And God, we want to pray. For one thing, you know, we talked about this struggle of infertility this morning, and we just want to pray for those who are going through that. It's heartbreaking, God, and I just pray that whoever, maybe there's someone here that's going through that or has been through it, and others that may go through it, some other time in the future. 
just pray that you would be their comfort, Lord, and their peace and their joy, their hope, that they would let you, and that their brothers and sisters in Christ around them would, would say the right things, would give them comfort, would bring the word of God powerfully into their life. And God, we pray for all of the children out there that, that you would want Christians to adopt. Lord, do what you do. Lord, bring families together. We thank you so much for all the adoptive parents, Lord, and the ministry that they've taken on, and we pray for their strength, God. We pray that they would have wisdom and that they would be successful in integrating those adopted child children into their families, that those children would, would truly understand, God, that they're loved, that they're valued, that they're a part of the family, and that they would be able to connect that with the love of God and how we've been adopted into his family. And that that would be a heart of your church in this world. And God, I pray that you would help us not to misplace value in our life. Lord, not to trade down not to trade those long-term rewards that we've just been reading about and learning about. Not, don't trade those for, for immediate, instant gratification. Lord, it's, it's not worth it. We, we see it in the world, God. It's, it's, it's easy to see. But then when we face it personally, it's a lot harder to do. But we pray that you would give us strength. We pray that we would do it together. And I'm so thankful, Lord. I can just praise you for the fact that the more that we do it and the more that we grow closer to you and the more we have people in our life who are praying for us, who are holding us accountable, God, it's, it does get easier. Lord, all those little trades that we have to make every day, Lord, it, it gets easier and it's more fulfilling and it's more rewarding and it brings you glory and honor and it works to build your kingdom. So God, help us. Thank you for adopting us. Thank you for making me an heir according to the promise. I didn't deserve it. I didn't do anything to make it happen. you gave it as a gift through your unconditional love. Thank you in Christ's holy name. Amen.